Good morning. You can open your Bibles to John chapter 11. John chapter 11. We'll begin in the last three verses of that chapter. So John chapter 11, verse 55. I'll give you just a minute to turn there, and then I'll pray. John chapter 11, verse 55. Now the Passover of the Jews was near, and many went up to Jerusalem out of the country before the Passover to purify themselves. So they were seeking for Jesus and were saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he was to report it so that they might seize him. Chapter 12, Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they made him a supper there, and Martha was serving, but Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Mary then took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who was intending to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor people? Now he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. Therefore Jesus said, let her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. Verse 9. The large crowd of the Jews then learned that he was there, and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. But the chief priests planned to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, Many of the Jews were going away and were believing in Jesus. This is the word of God. Let's pray together. Father, we ask now, in agreement with all the things that have already been prayed this morning, that for your sake, like, like the prophet of old said, you said through the prophet, for my sake, for my sake, not for their sake, for my sake, you would give grace. Lord, we ask that for your sake, so that you would make a name for yourself, just like you made a name over Pharaoh, for yourself, that you would be gracious to us this morning and show Jesus to us. And we pray that just like in Acts, you would pierce us to the heart. Bring us all the way down low to a place of contrition and honesty and the confession of sin so that we would really deal with you without hiding, without pretending, without justifying or excusing, but we would be honest and we would see our need, our real, we say that all the time, our deep need, our plight without Jesus the terrible judgment that would await us without Him. Show that to us this morning, and then come and show us His great kindness, His gentleness, His lowliness, His love for His people that is in no way contingent on them, on us. Show us His great heart, His magnanimous heart of mercy and goodwill for His enemies. We pray that You would bless us, Lord. I pray that there would be people in this room today who for the first time would see what's always been there, the resurrected Savior enthroned at your right hand, having accomplished their redemption. Make people see today. Pray in Jesus' name, amen. I want you to let your imagination go back in time about 3,400 years, 3,400 years. You're in Egypt. So think pyramids, sphinxes, sand, Pharaoh, the Nile River, 
the hot burning heat of the sun beating down those waves that are on the top of the hills because they're so hot, snakes that slither across the sand and leave those wavy tracks. Now imagine that at the time, they had a great military power in Egypt, military might with countless chariots and horses, a perfectly regimented army conquering other kingdoms with ease, and then see the poor, bedraggled little Israelites living there in Egypt. They were sent there by God and His providence, but they were slaves. They were trapped. They were oppressed. They were mistreated. They were abused. And then Moses, this nobody, this shepherd man, is sent by God to confront the Pharaoh. That would be like a poor man in Russia trying to confront Joseph Stalin and overturn him. It's impossible. But God is with Moses, and he overpowers overpowers the Pharaoh by the ten plagues. You've all heard of the ten plagues. Do you remember the final plague? God had already established that he would make a name over Pharaoh. That means he would defeat him, and the whole world would hear that God defeated him. God threw him down in the dust, and God would be honored as the only God, and Pharaoh would be humbled. But what was that final plague that was the end of Pharaoh's dominion over God's people? It was that God had told Moses that death was coming to every single house in Egypt without exception. There would either be the death of the oldest male child in every household. We have many of those here in this room today. Or there would be the blood of a sacrificial lamb, a substitute that would be slain by every family. They were to slaughter the lamb, and they were to take the blood and smear it over the top of the doorposts. But blood would be spilled in every house either the little boys or the little lambs. One of the two, no exceptions. Well, you know how the story goes. Many did not fear the Lord and so did not obey the Lord. They scoffed at His threat, and they awoke to find their sons cold, lifeless, corpses, and there was weeping and wailing. But some, believing the Lord, trusting his promises, they slaughtered that innocent victim, and they took its blood, and they did what I said. They smeared it over the top. Said another way, they hid underneath the blood of the lamb. And when they did that, God kept his promise to pass over them. Well, you know how the story goes. Pharaoh has had quite enough. His own son is dead. And so he sends the people out, and to fast forward, they end up in the wilderness, they receive the law, and a part of that law is that God tells them, as he often does, every year you need to remember what happened when I brought you out of Egypt. Every year, I want you to celebrate a feast and look back to the Exodus, and particularly look back to the Passover. Remember that every single year, and they did. More or less, every single year, they continued to remember and look back for 1,400 years. And Jesus, when He comes on the scene, falls into that tradition, that biblical, commanded by God tradition. And He, commit, he attended lots of those Passover festivals, pr- presumably annually, but certainly in the Gospel of John, He attended the last three each year of the end of his life. We get the record of them in John's gospel. And the first two of them that Jesus attended went off in John's gospel without much to do. Nothing much happened, at least by comparison. But that third one turned out to be the most cataclysmic event in the history of the space-time continuum. It happened at Passover. And that brings us to our text for this morning. The text itself is divided into three sections. The first section will be the final three verses of chapter 11. So chapter 11, verse 55 through 57. And John the writer gives us a setup. Jordan mentioned last week that at this point, John transitions into that final week of Jesus' life. This is the end of the gospel, though we're only in chapter 11 and 12. These three verses here set the stage for those events, the events of that week. And John brings out two important themes that I'm going to draw out for you from this text that are the setup 
for the Passion Week. The first theme I've already been talking about, it's the Passover. That same feast that God instituted 1,400 years earlier. Now, John tells us that many, in verse 55, many went up to Jerusalem. There's a big crowd, and they went up to prepare for the feast, the Passover festival. And the situation is thick with irony on two accounts. If your eyes are open, you can see there is serious irony. First is that the text says they've come to purify themselves in preparation for the feast. This is common in the Old Testament, particularly with the Passover. Numbers 9:10 and 2 Chronicles 30, verse 17 and following are examples of when people would come and they would prepare for the Passover with cleansings and washings and sacrifices and things like that. You could get the specifics in those passages. But they're going to prepare to make themselves ceremonially clean and prepared for the Passover. Where's the irony? Those same people who are cleansing themselves are about to slaughter the Son of God. They wouldn't want to be ceremonially unclean before they do away with God's Son. Or if they're going to get the blood of Jesus on their hands, they should wash them first. That's what's happening. They are purifying themselves before this festival. We know that many of them are those same crowds who would cry out, part of those same crowds who would cry out for Jesus' death. Only a a select precious few remained with Jesus until the end. But irony number two, look there in verse 56. They were seeking for Jesus. They're looking for Him. The irony here is that John, the writer, earlier in the Gospel of John, has already made crystal clear that Jesus is the Lamb of God. He calls Him twice the Lamb of God. In chapter 1, verse 29, he says He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This means, as I've been alluding to all morning, that Jesus would be slaughtered, put to death. Just like all those innocent lambs in Egypt all those years before, he would be slaughtered, his blood would be shed, and all of his people would hide under his blood, and God would pass over them. John's already let the cat out of the bag. That's who Jesus is. Well, where's the irony? The irony is that the people are looking to see if the lamb is going to come. Is there going to be a lamb at Passover? They say, what do you think? That he'll not come to the feast at all? They don't know if he's going to show up because the Pharisees and the chief priests have already put out the warrant for his arrest. Is there going to be a lamb at Passover? Well, that's the first theme that John brings out for us. We need not forget, we must not forget that this passage, the last week of Jesus' life, as you read it, as we preach through it for the next number of months, this is the Passover. Don't forget the environment that John has painted here. That's the first theme, the Passover. The second theme has to do with Lazarus' resurrection and the controversy that is born as a result. You remember, of course, from two weeks ago and last week, really, that Lazarus has just been raised from the dead, and this makes a big stir. People have varied responses, just like in our day. People have varied responses to everything. Well, The case of Lazarus' resurrection is no different. Positively, the text tells us in chapter 11, verse 45, that many people believed in Jesus. But negatively, the chief priests and the Pharisees were not happy. We heard last week they convened a council, the Sanhedrin, and the result, the indecision, the vote they carried is that they would carry out a diplomatic, government-sanctioned murder via the Romans. That's the plan. That's what went into their minutes. Take him out. We're going to make it look like justice so we don't get in trouble, but that's the plan. And chapter 11, verse 57, the verse in our text, the last verse of chapter 11, pardon me, is step A in that conspiracy to put Jesus to death. Look what it says. The chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew who he was, he was to report it so that they might seize him. It's reminiscent of the way that those Old Testament families would have had to seize their lamb. 
And here we have the same situation. These chief priests and Pharisees are going to seize the lamb and put him to death. Their hearts are hard. They've grown totally unacquainted with the God who instituted that first Passover. They don't know what it's like to be before him in fear and trembling. Those days are long gone. Their hearts are hard, they're calloused, they're willing to do whatever is necessary. So they've given this order and everybody knows it and there's undoubtedly punishments for non-compliance. And so everybody says, is Jesus even gonna show up? We know what's gonna happen. Is he gonna walk right into the lion's den? Is that where we're headed? Will the lamb climb up onto the altar voluntarily? Is that what's coming? Well, John builds the tension. He sets it up. It's like a a dam wall when the river's too high and everybody knows it and nobody knows if the dam is gonna burst or not. There's tension. What is about to happen? But before we get to the feast, John swerves at the beginning of chapter 12 and takes us away from Jerusalem to Bethany to a little local intimate dinner where Jesus is the guest of honor. That's the second section of our text. Chapter 12, verse 1 through 8. The first thing to notice in this section is the honest worshiper. The honest worshiper, that's Mary. So at the dinner, you have Jesus, Martha, Mary, and her brother, Lazarus. It's an intimate dinner. It's probably small, not a huge, certainly a lot smaller than the feast at Passover. Martha is serving. And then consider Mary. The dinner's going on. Mary must have been overcome. She rises. She gathers together her most precious possession, this pound of pure nard by some translations, or ointment, or perfume. It's exceedingly fragrant. Just a little bit of it. If you drop one drop, the whole room probably is filled with this fragrance. It's the most luxurious substance, or one of the most luxurious substances. This is choice. It's precious. It's extremely valuable. It costs a lot of money. We'll come to that in a minute. And she goes and she gets it, and she knows what she's going to do with it. So can you see her at the dinner? She knows. She goes to get it, and she brings it. She, find, she knows where Jesus is. She comes to him, and she begins to anoint him with it. And there's oil now, this, this ointment, this fragrant perfume, and it's on him, and it's on his feet. And the text tells us that she takes her hair, her hair, and she gets down where his feet are. She's got to be crying, and she's wiping his feet with, with her hair. And Jesus receives it all. Now, to us, it's weird. It's foreign. We don't do that. But let me give you a little Old Testament background to help you see what must have been in Mary's mind. You've probably heard of the Old Testament anointing oil. So in Exodus 30, we get the ingredient list. There's myrrh, it's fragrant, and cinnamon, and fragrant cane, and cassia, which is a cousin of cinnamon. And it's all mixed in with a base of olive oil. And the idea is it's extremely fragrant. And they would take it. God commanded them to take it. Go into the tabernacle and anoint all the vessels of the ministry with that oil, including the altar where the sacrifices will be. Fill it all up with this fragrant aroma so that when you come to worship, there's a Uh, an expression via smell of the worth of God. There's praise through smell offered to God. And in Exodus 40, verse 13 and following, it's not only the inanimate objects that fill up the temple, but it's people. It's Aaron and his sons, that's the priests. They too are to be anointed with oil. And then on you go in the Old Testament, kings are anointed with oil. Those things who are, here's the summary, set apart as holy, having to do with the worship of God, are anointed with this fragrant oil. You anoint things that bring sinners into the presence of God. What's Mary doing? She knows who she's dealing with. 
She's anointing him with this fragrant, aromatic, overwhelming, everything she can think to give him in praise and worship oil. This nard, ointment, perfume. She's preoccupied with him. She's not distracted. She can't think of anything else. She's not trying to concentrate. She's totally taken with him. She's bringing him what is probably the most valuable thing that she owns. The text tells us that Judas thought it could be sold for 300 denarii. If you just calculate that out, it may be roughly $60,000. And it's about the size of a cup of coffee. And Mary's bringing it, she has no doubt doesn't think twice. She is enamored with him. She's praising him. Verse 3 tells us that the smell, the aroma, fills the whole house. So in Jerusalem, everybody wants him dead. But in Bethany, Mary says, he's the Lord. He's the Lamb. He's everything to me. She's totally preoccupied with him. The smell, the smell is reminiscent of Leviticus chapter 16. That's the Day of Atonement. God commanded that the people would, the priests would gather hot coals, burning hot coals, and then they would take this incense, this powder, this fragrant incense, and they would get into the Holy of Holies, and they would take that incense, and they would drop, them, drop it on those hot coals. And you know what happens. It burns, and it creates this smoke. And he says, quote, from Leviticus 16, that should happen in order to, here's the quote, cover the mercy seat that is on the ark of the testimony. Again, there's to be worship when God is approached. The mercy seat is where God meets with his people, where the blood of the victim comes and God fills the place up with this smell, this fragrant, soothing aroma. Same thing comes from the sacrifices themselves and God is to be worshiped and Mary can't help, she can't help. No one told her what to do, it wasn't a command. She wanted to do it. She filled the place up with the worship of Jesus. She's not thinking about herself. She's not navel gazing. She's not trying to decide if she's doing it right. She's not trying to decide if she's sincere. She's not examining her worship. She doesn't care who else is watching. None of that is important to her. She's totally taken with him. And not many days ago, she was there when Jesus brought her brother, Lazarus, back from the dead. She, she observed him. We know from the text she was present when Lazarus was raised from the dead. She saw Jesus weeping. She watched him. Have you ever wanted to see what happened there in that text? He wept. She saw him. She saw his love. The text tells us in chapter 11 that Jesus loved them, and she saw it, and she knew he loved her. She knew and she saw and she watched as Jesus stood there looking at the mouth of that cave and she saw him yell with that all authoritative life-giving voice into that tomb with a corpse in it and he said, Lazarus, come out! Can you imagine Mary in that moment? Every nerve in her body would have been on fire. What's about to happen? And she saw murky at first that silhouette coming out of the tomb, all wrapped in grave, grave clothes, her brother, Lazarus. She would have wept. She would have been undone, just torn apart. She would have hugged him, great big tears. And she would have known that Jesus is the one who has life in himself to raise people from the dead. And now there he is sitting at dinner. Days later, he's there. The text tells us Lazarus is at the dinner. And Mary knows who it is whom she is anointing. She is taken with Jesus. When is the last time you worshipped Jesus? When is the last time your heart burned for him? That praise went up to King Jesus. Rick said a minute ago, be in his presence. Have you been able to quit thinking about yourself? To quit thinking about the world and your to-do list and your reputation and all the things that you want to do and have in the world and been taken with him, talked to him, spoken a word to him, been in his presence? Has it been long? For myself, sometimes it's longer than I would like to admit 
And if that's the case, today is a good day to get into a room by yourself and tell him. And be honest with him. Tell him the truth. Lord, you know my heart. You know I've been disinterested with you. I haven't cared. I've been apathetic. Please forgive me. Go get in his presence. He'll take you back. He's gentle. He's merciful. He shed his blood so that you, people like you, people like me, we could come. Go and worship him. If you do anything else today, go worship Jesus. Be in his presence. And so we have the honest worshiper, Mary. But we have a second character, the lying thief. The lying thief. So Mary is there pouring out her heart in irresistible praise to Jesus, but in the shadows is lurking a spoiler, a second character. He's ready to take that that pot of coals that's ready to burn for Jesus and just dump water all over it. Judas Iscariot, the lying thief. Look in verse 4. John says he's one of the disciples, or like the psalm says, a close friend. He should not be causing trouble for Jesus. It makes his betrayal more acute. The closer you get, the more painful the betrayal. Some of us know that in the room. He's one of Jesus' disciples, and John also tells us that Judas is the one who's about to betray him. That's the ESV translation, the one about to betray him. I mentioned that we're here at Passion Week. It's coming. He's about to betray Jesus, and Judas tries to interfere with Mary's worship, particularly. He tries to stop her, and he does so with lying and intent to steal or theft. He's indignant. Why didn't we sell this money? We could have sold it. We could have gotten $60,000. Imagine all the good we could have done with all of that money. We could have given it to the poor. What a waste. He's taking the moral high ground. You see that? We could have done better. I want to intervene because I see that a better path could have been chosen. This is wrong. I'm going to tell you what you should have done. He's taking the moral high ground. He's posturing. He's a pretender. And John tells us so. He tells us what was really behind Judas' words. Four things. He tells us that Judas was a thief. The eighth commandment given by God says, you shall not steal. And John tells us there in the text, he used to pilfer, Judas did, what was put into the money box. He used to take a little for himself right off the top. It was his habit. He used to do it. Not he did it once. It says he used to do it ongoingly. Many times he had slipped his hand down into that money box, grabbed just a few coins when nobody was looking, slipped it down in his pocket, and softly let those coins fall in so that they didn't clank. He loved the world. And it wouldn't be very long before he would accept 30 pieces of silver, a pretty good amount of money, for Jesus' life. He was a thief. So I'm going to ask you, are you a thief? I'm asking very practically, have you been stealing things that are not yours? Children, listen to me. Have you stolen anything? Adults, have you been stealing, hiding your sin, taking what's not rightfully yours, exaggerating the work you did so that you can be paid more, lying on this or that form in order to get more money, just simply taking things that don't belong to you? What's in your house that's not rightfully yours? Have you been stealing? If you have, don't follow Judas the rest of the way down that path. You know where that path ends. He's called the son of perdition. It would have been better for him, Jesus says, if he'd not been born. Repent of your theft if you've been stealing. Go and tell Jesus, confess it honestly and ask him to forgive you. And do whatever's right to make it right. Second, Judas was a liar. He was a liar. The ninth commandment says, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. But maybe more generally, Proverbs 19.9 says, a false witness will not go unpunished. 
and he who tells lies will perish. Revelation 21, verse 7 and 8, this is hard language. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Judas was a liar. He stole money deceitfully. His question to Jesus in that moment was a scam. Shouldn't we sell this and give it to the poor? That's not what he wanted. He wanted to take some for himself. John tells us so right there in the text. He was a liar. I'm asking you, have you been lying? Have you been telling lies? Have you been lying to your spouse? Have you been lying to your parents? Have you been lying to your employer? Your neighbors, your friends, your pastors, have you been lying? If you've been lying, don't follow Jesus, don't follow Judas down that path. Confess your sin to God, come clean, take full responsibility, no excuses, tell God the truth. I'm a liar, I've been lying, Lord. Be honest about your sin, confess it to God, ask him to forgive you in Jesus' name, and tell somebody and ask him to help you. Third, Judas was a hypocrite. He was a pretender. He was a fake. He was a fraud, a phony. I mentioned that he was taking the moral high ground. It is possible to project high spirituality as a smokescreen to cover up your unrighteousness, the wrong things you've done. He's projecting an image but all the while, that just serves as cover for who he really is. He was projecting an image as a spiritually fervent man. We need to care for the poor. He's just taking what he wanted. Are you a pretender? Are you working hard to project a certain image about yourself to other people, to this church? Are you trying to be noticed, to get some recognition here among these people? Because Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount, if you're doing that, if you're trying to be noticed, to get recognition, to climb the social, spiritual, churchy ladder, you're, you're living to be noticed by men. That's your only reward. God will give you nothing else. You get that? That's all you get. God shuts the door. There's no more reward for pretending for hypocrisy, for seeking the glory of men. You should repent of that kind of pretending. You should be honest. You should confess your sin to your Father. And fourth and finally, Jesus, pardon me, Judas was abusing the poor. Simply put, every coin he pulled out of that money box and slipped into his pocket was one less coin that would have gone to the poor. He did not care. He could do it over and over and over again with a heart as hard as stone. Hammer and chisel makes no dent on that heart. He was abusing the poor. Grace Church, visitors, children, if you've been stealing or lying or pretending to be something you're not, or abusing the poor, confess your sin and don't go down that wide path with a big gate that everybody else seems to be going down. Don't go there. It ends in destruction. Confess your sins. God has made promises like Proverbs 28, 13 that are meant to allure you into honesty. Listen to the verse. He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper. But he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. He'll find compassion. So you confess your sins, be honest with them. Forsake them means with all God's grace, stop doing it 
Ask God to help you strive according to his power that mightily works in you to obey him. Confess your sins. And he says, when you do, you'll find compassion. I began with the Passover. You hide under the blood of Christ. If you can come to God knowing full well that the price has already been paid for your sins, then you can be honest. Then you can be honest with him. You know you'll find compassion. You know you find, you'll find forgiveness. If you don't trust Christ, you'll never be honest. You won't be able to bear the weight of a guilty conscience without the assurance of forgiveness. There's no chance. You need to hide under the blood of the lamb and God will pass over you. And then third in this section, we see Jesus' intervention. He responds to Judas. He knows what Judas is doing. He knew from the beginning who it was that would betray him. He knew what was in every man. And he shuts him down in verse 7. Look at verse 7. Therefore, Jesus said, let her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. Let her alone. Can you see Jesus there? Can you see him standing up for her, two feet planted, the shepherd standing there, standing in the gap, staff in his hand, leave her alone. The wolf wants to come and devour his sheep and he's not going to have it. He's ensuring that Mary is free to worship unhindered. And notice, Jesus doesn't object to receiving Mary's worship. He takes her in because it is an act of, he says, burial preparation. He says, let her keep it. Let me read it. Let her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. Now, The translations are divided on how to render that phrase. I read the NASB a moment ago, let her alone so that she may keep it, i.e. it implies she'll continuing on keeping it. But the other way it's often translated, or more often actually translated, I'm going to read you the NIV, leave her alone, it was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial, i.e. she kept it up until now, and now she's using it. Either way, Jesus turns Judas away. He rejects his indictment that Mary was being wasteful or frivolous. He tells him, it'll soon go to the cross. You won't always have me. You'll always have the poor. You won't have me. I'm going to the cross. I'll soon go to the cross. I'll die like a sacrificial lamb. And that Mary's extravagance plays a particular, specific role in redemption history. It's burial preparation. The death of Christ happens in the span of history one time. Mary's act of extravagance fills need in his being prepared for burial. So Jesus intervenes. He turns away the wolf. He lets Mary continue to worship him. He stands in the gap. He is the man par excellence, if you will. And Mary is able to continue to worship freely. So John's given us the contrast. Mary is enamored with Jesus. She's giving him her all. She's totally persuaded that he is who he says he is. But on the other hand, Judas is a thief, a liar, a hypocrite, and an abuser of the poor. And this contrast, some worshiping, some rejecting, and resisting, has been with us the entirety of the Gospel of John, and it will be with us until we finish the Gospel of John. He said in chapter 1, John did in the prologue, He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. And in the third part of our text, verses 9 through 11, how low will they, that's the Jewish leadership, go? How low will they go? According to the chief priest, Lazarus has got to go. I said a moment ago that Lazarus' resurrection created a stir, positively provoking some faith, but negatively, according to the chief priests, this is a big problem. It's a big problem. Imagine if you're trying to resist Jesus, and then some people you know of go out and they visit Bethany, and they say, no, we saw the guy who, who Jesus raised from the dead. We saw him. He's alive. You can go see him too. He's out there. And then they come back and they spread that message around everywhere. And more and more people are hearing that Jesus raised a man from the dead. 
There's proof. You can go verify it out in Bethany. He's there. This is a big problem for the chief priests and Pharisees. They want Jesus done away with, and there's no way to do away with him if he's going around raising people from the dead and nobody can deny it. So what are they going to do? They've tried other tricks before. In chapter, chapter 9, they tried to, some other way, discredit the miracle, starting some propaganda out there, spreading doubt everywhere. They're going to discredit the miracle. Oh, it's not really the man who was born blind. It's got to be somebody else. It can't really be him. They tried that once. They also tried another propaganda scheme to explain Jesus' power as being from the devil or from demons. Yeah, yeah, he has that power only because he's casting out demons by the ruler of the demons. So they've tried a lot of angles to discredit what John calls the signs, the proofs of his identity. Times are too desperate for those old methods. They're going to take him out. They're just going to do away with him. They're going to hire a hitman and they're going to kill the innocent man raised from the dead, Lazarus. This is atrocious. He's inconvenient to their agenda, to their maintenance of power, and they're going to take him out. Now, just note, last week we had Caiaphas saying it's, it's expedient for the people that one man should die for the nation. That's better. But what happens when you agree to take on wickedness and evil? What happens? Now you've got to kill two people, not just one. Now there's two. And as soon as you open that door, it's Pandora's box. It'll never stop. You'll do anything you have to do, and they would also. They'd even go so far as murdering the Son of God. These were apparently very dangerous people. Do you know anybody who, seem, who assumes, who presumes to have this kind of power? It's on their list of available options to just make Lazarus disappear. These were dangerous people. They had a lot of power. They could probably make the official records look neat and tidy. There's nothing to see here. There's no excuse for putting to death an innocent man. He hadn't done anything wrong. He wasn't a blasphemer. They couldn't even say that he was raised on the Sabbath. He had merely been raised from the dead. That was his crime. He'd received mercy from Jesus. That was all. And I want you to note that the chief priests and the Pharisees are going to use ungodly means to accomplish what they see as a very important purpose. They, from their perspective, from their vantage point, they don't want God's people to be deceived by a false teacher named Jesus. That's important. They think they're trying to protect the people of God. They have a very important end goal. It's so important that they're willing to do ungodly things to get there. They think they're above the law, outside of the authority of God. They don't know what it is to have a tender conscience before him. They have to accomplish those ends. So do you yell at your children because you know that what they did was actually wrong and they need to be trained not to do it anymore? You use an ungodly strategy because you say the end goal is important and I care about them. Do you gossip about your coworkers because you say, I know that what they did was actually wrong and the business needs to improve and we need to kind of put an end to these things. So you gossip, you tell what they did to people that don't really need to know. Do you justify sexual sin because you say, God gave me these appetites, God made me this way. He's the one who gave me these appetites. And so you're willing to do what is wrong in his sight, saying that it's God who gave you the desires. Maybe you're here and you're not a believer. You're not yet a Christian. Do you justify your ongoing immoral lifestyle by saying, I knew some Christians once and they turned out to be hypocrites, and so it invalidates their message? That's a tragedy if that happened to you. I'm sorry if that happened to you, but it will not count in the end. God will not accept that excuse. 
as justification for refusing to repent and believe. It's a tragedy, no doubt, but it's justifying ungodly behavior, refusing to put your faith in Jesus. That's what the Pharisees were doing. They thought they had an important ends, and they're willing to do whatever needed to get done to make sure it happened, to make sure that the people weren't deceived. But God is not mocked. We will, all of us, reap what we sow. You put thistles in the ground, you will have thistles that come up. God is never, ever mocked. So what do we do? We own up fully to God. You confess your sins. God knows. He knows. You cannot hide from Him. He won't let it go. He won't let anything go. But He will forgive you. He'll forgive you of your sins. Fully, clean slate. I read it in Isaiah this morning. Your sins, although they're like scarlet, they're as red as crimson, God says, I'll make them white as snow. Have you been out and seen on a fresh, in February, all this snow and the purity, the radiant, blazing, pure, spotless whiteness of all that snow? No sin, all forgiven, every bit of it. Or like, the pure wool of a sheep. You remember the Passover, the lamb that was to be slain was to be pure, no defect, no problems with it at all. You look at it, its wool is just so white. It's pure, it's perfect. There's no spot, no twinge. God says if you hide under the blood of Christ and you're forgiven by him, none of your sins are still with you. All the ones that you committed this past week and this past month and all the ones you've never confessed before, you bring them to him in a giant heap and he forgives them all, no exceptions. All of them. This is why Jesus died on the cross. This is why for 1,400 years God saw to it that the people would go through a ritual of putting to death these lambs year after year after year, how many countless hundreds of thousands of lambs were slaughtered at God's command, millions of them. Why? So that his people would learn that when the sacrifice is slaughtered as a substitute in their place, when, when that blood is shed, God will grant you full forgiveness in Jesus' name. Let's tie all the themes together as we close. That first Passover was, as I've said, a dramatic preview of the true and better lamb that was coming later, Jesus, who would be slain for our sins. He was slain in exactly the same way and for exactly the same reason as all those millions of lambs. God is not playing games. He means business. He's not changing his mind The substitute has been slain. And the religious leadership in Jesus' day had grown so accustomed to disregarding God. They had had gotten so hard of heart. They had abandoned God. In Isaiah's day, he called them, you leaders of Sodom, you nation of Gomorrah. He's saying, my people are exactly like Sodom and Gomorrah. The same chapter, chapter one, they're sick all the way through, welts, bruises, all kinds of injuries. Imagine a human body, and it's just sick from head to toe. That's his people. That's the people that Jesus encounters. That's the chief priests and Pharisees in Jesus' day. They've gone so far that they're willing to murder God's son. And in a terrible twist of irony, They think they're doing a good thing. They're murdering the Son of God, and yet in God's providence, they're slaying the final Passover lamb. And as the lamb, Jesus, in our text, moves closer and closer to the cross, set his face like a flint, he's going there. He knows who he is. He's the lamb who will be slain. Some would worship him as Messiah and Son of God, and some would reject him, and they would oppose him. They would resist him. And the world has always been divided exactly that way. Worshippers, resistors. This room is the same. 
There are two categories, no exceptions. There are people worshiping the lamb, trusting him, hiding under the blood, and then there are people rejecting, or as Paul would say in Romans, suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. Yet, despite all the evil schemes of the big power players in Jerusalem, Jesus could not be conquered. All those countless lambs, they were slain, their bodies were done away with, and that was the end. Jesus was the only lamb ever to climb up off of the altar in resurrection life. And if his resurrection is true, everything changes. If he is not raised from the dead, Christianity is a farce. If he's raised from the dead, he's the Lord of all. If he's raised from the dead, he knows everything about us. He knows our lying, he knows our stealing, he knows our pretending, he knows the way we abuse the poor, he knows all the rest of the sins that we commit, he knows them all, he knows the way we justify our sin. We explain it, we make excuses, we try not to think about it. We do all kinds of things. He knows all of this and his father won't let any of it go. He won't forget, he won't fail to notice, he won't be deceived, he won't bend, he won't be worn down by your persistence. He won't be persuaded by any of your excuses, even if you are. But he'll forgive you through and through, thoroughgoingly. The Father will honor the blood of the Passover lamb that was shed to forgive sinners. He'll pass over you. And so I conclude with Proverbs 28, 13, the same verse I read a bit ago. He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. Let's pray. Father, we confess our sins. We confess, Lord, so many ways we've gone astray. You know, you know all the things we don't know. Lord, we want to confess that we are an ungodly people. In ourselves, we have no merit. We go astray like the publican, Lord, be merciful to us sinners. And I pray that particularly today, you would draw our attention to the risen lamb. Like in Revelation, I saw as if slain a lamb. Once slain, now risen. Lord, make us see the Lord Jesus. Make us see the way his eyes burn with fire at his hatred of sin. Make it land on us like a giant thunderclap when he said, if you love me, you will obey me. And then make us see, make us dare to believe like all the saints that have gone before us with trembling lips and shaky hands, that you love and forgive sinners in Jesus' name. That his blood is sufficient. Turn our eyes away from ourselves, up towards him and say, I believe that you love me. I believe that you've forgiven me just the way I am. Help me to live for you. Lord, bless us that way. Help us and have mercy on us. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.